Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording this section of the Book Riot Podcast on Monday, <laughs> February 21st. I'm going to cry. 2022. <laughs> we recorded the back half last week. Rebecca, we had a little tech glitch. We lost the first 15 minutes or so of the show. We'll talk about it here in a minute. So it's a little bit of a, a chimera, a griffin, a uh, centaur. Um, you know you know what they like to do in the olden times is mix their animals up in mythology. They sure did. Yeah. I was thinking it's more like a jump in the Wayne's World Wayback Machine. Like, we'll talk here for 15 minutes, and then we can go like, do-do-do, do We should probably get that. Yeah, you can hear us last Thursday when you asked me how I was doing, and I couldn't answer. You just came up, return null. Just, ah, yes, 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 M existing. Yeah, right, it's... Right. It's it's Monday morning. I'm highly caffeinated. Mm. We're not in a moment of existential crisis yet. The week is too new. That's right. It's too young. So here we are. So depending on how good of an edit point I found, find, you might find a weird Wayne's World edit point sound effect. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go. It's an adventure every day, uh, Rebecca. But uh, before we do that, we're going to take it for a sponsor and try to somewhat recreate uh, what we talked about before because it's, it's worth talking about a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in Alternating Viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so the first things first is um, putting a little cap on the gumroad experimentation we've done around bonus content. I think we've learned enough now that we're not going to do any more of those, but we're going to explore some sort of subscription membership thing where you get different, new, more content for dollars over time. We're still putting together mm -hmm. the pieces of what this might look like. Um, and I think we're going to, I'm not going to have it up today because we didn't do it yet. But in the coming weeks, we're going to have a link to a survey in the show where you can go kind of rank the stuff you might like to have. Um, and we're kind of going to middle that with what we actually can do, we want to do. The one thing we're cognizant of over time, having done other subscription services, um, Book Riot Insiders and TBR and other things is, you got to do it forever, right? It's all nice and good to say, ah, this would be fun and we could add this. And then suddenly you're doing that six years from now and you're like, uh, why are we doing anything that, and it's hard to roll back. But um, we want to figure out what might be useful there. So if you've still got, got a few ideas from people when I asked for this uh, last oh, week, nice. uh, we're, you know, nothing, nothing we haven't seen before, but sure would like as much signal from y'all as possible. You can email us podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, Rebecca, anything else that comes to mind to get people's mental juices flowing? Yeah, you know, I'm just especially interested in if you've subscribed to like premium content from other podcasts that you listen to, what you really enjoy about that. And also if you've seen stuff in those experiences that you didn't super like that would be really interesting for us to know so that we don't maybe waste our time going down those paths we've both you know are dedicated podcast listeners to many things we've looked at a lot of options but hearing from y'all about what would be exciting and interesting to you what kind of extra time you want to spend yeah. with us um, aside from you know the lonesome dove read-along right really well that's useful. gonna come right that's gonna come day one <laughs> that'll be a launch perk for the, the... well you know we uh yeah, yeah, obviously we're going to do that. We had talked about, or you and I have talked about, like, sort of setting some benchmarks of if we get to a certain yes. number of subscribers introducing, you know, different kinds of um, additional content. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I have not written off the idea of Lonesome Dove, but it would take a lot of people opting in <laughs> to whatever this thing is. It would have to be to a, it would have to crowded Dove, let's say, uh, to get yeah. enough, and, enough of us to, <laughs> yes. to commit to that. And uh, I think one thing that you mentioned the first time we recorded mm. this segment that I want to make sure we don't forget is that we've also considered ways that we could use subscribership to the bonus content to support additional content that would happen on the regular yes. show so that folks who can't afford to subscribe to bonus material or who for some reason don't want to um, could still you know if a certain number of y'all were paying in for the bonus content we could still do additional fun things that didn't have to be ad supported um, in our regular feed so there's all yeah. kinds of stuff we're trying to consider you know the needs of our business the interests of the audience and also balancing that yeah everybody in the audience isn't in the same position mm -hmm. so let us know what you'd like to do yeah i think the simplest thing it's kind of what the gumroot experiment was at its core doing right or wrong was taking the, a kind of content block out of the main feed mm -hmm. that would normally go there and put it behind a paywall. 
I think we'd like to not do that. So if we have something that's an hour long of us talking that looks and sounds like a pod episode, it goes in the main feed just because that's what we do. We like that. We like most of the people to get that. Um, but are a are there some things that don't really fit in in a way that makes sense um, that we could do? And then could support for, you know, direct support mean we make more of those things? Because we don't have the kinds of advertisers that if we made nine shows a month, we could support that. We just don't have that many um, that could do it. We have at this level, maybe a little bit more, but people I think might want more content than advertising alone would support. I guess that's kind of the the theory of all these kind of subscription models, Yes, right? yeah. is that there is, there's mm-hmm. excess desire for more content that advertising sponsorship doesn't really make possible. And we're going to try to find if there's a sweet spot. And there may not be. We'll try it over. T- we're going to try something. We'll see how long it lasts. Um, but yeah, I really do like that idea of maybe maybe the subscription doesn't even get you anything else, but it goes into the hat that then produces shows that show up in the regular feed. Because one thing, if anything we learned from Gumroad, I would say, the single biggest takeaway I would take uh, is redundant, but it didn't feel that way when I said <laughs> it. Uh, and I'm curious if you agree with me, is that people like to listen to pods where they listen to pods, which sounds like a tautology, but it's very true. And I totally get it. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, I'd say. that's I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah, the I think most frequent complaint about the Gumroad thing was that like it was clunky to get it into your podcatcher. Mm. It didn't go with. It didn't play nicely with all of the podcatchers. The tech was not completely intuitive, and. I share those feelings as a podcast listener. I want to listen to my podcast in the place where I listen to them. I bailed on one like long time podcast app that I had used for like six years when they did an update that made it harder to find what I was looking for. I think we all want that to be a streamlined mm-hmm. experience. So moving to something that's not one off experimental like Gumroad, but that is you know more sustainable, that's built for delivering bonus podcast content um, so that folks can access it in the place places that they regularly listen to their shows is something that's that's high priority for us. Yeah. So we want it to be a good experience. And we do appreciate that y'all went along with us on the experiment of clunkiness just to get some baseline data. That's right. Um, okay, so enough of that for now. So the first the first thing we did last week, it was a bit of a curveball. Rebecca wasn't ready for it. <laughs> and it was delightful. And we had a lot of fun. And it's really the all joking aside about the editing or whatever, I was really, it's like one of the, con- sometimes with tech glitches when we lose something and we have to go do it. And we just talk about the same story or record something else. Part of the fun of this was that Rebecca wasn't ready for it and it's spontaneous. So the game was, and I kind of came up with it because I wanted to talk about a recent trip I had made to Pals and I was looking at uh, my pals here on Hawthorne in Portland, don't be creepy, mm-hmm. uh, where has the, <laughs> has the, the uh, wall of Pals bestsellers. And mm-hmm. I was looking, and the top three there were interesting to me. And I wanted Rebecca to guess what it was. And so we played a game of 20 questions where she could ask yes or no questions to try to, do, to narrow down through the power of reverse compounding, really, when you think about what 20 questions is, mm-hmm. um, getting there. And so we're not going to replicate it, right? But I'm going to, we're going to kind of walk through what happened. So one thing I did there is I paused for a minute to ask the listener, A, listener, do you think that Rebecca is going to get it? So ask your listener. You're the listener, right? You, I'm, yeah, you, right there, you. What If that's going to happen. And B, if, if your answer is yes, how many questions do you think it's going to take? And at the moment, we did not know what was going to happen, right, Rebecca? So just, just so you know, <laughs> yeah, no. we had no idea how this was like- going to go. 
I was still deeply in that how are you doing existential crisis. So it was like, who knows what's going to happen? You know, I sensed weakness and I pounced, uh, to be honest with you, is kind of how that worked. So This is the uh, price I pay for being game, I That's think. right, yeah, for being honest. No, no good deed goes unexploited. <laughs> um, so, Rebecca, we did this, and how, before telling people the results, kind of how did you proceed? Do you remember yeah. how you proceeded? let's see. So you had just also been talking about a publisher's weekly bestsellers list yes. that you were looking at. So I remember starting there, asking if the book that was the Powell's bestseller was on the Publishers Weekly. I think it was hardcover mm-hmm. fiction bestseller. That's correct. That was your like first that. question. Yeah, and you said no, and I was like, okay, so it's not on hardcover fiction bestsellers. I don't remember the order that I went I in, don't but I necessarily either. Yeah. I did. I asked if it was hardcover. I asked if it was fiction. Mm-hmm. I asked if the author was a woman. Yep. I asked if the author was a person of color, mm-hmm. and. I think I you you also asked if it was published in 2021, meaning yes. a relatively recent. Because yeah. you, you you figured out by asking about the hardcover. Right. Or somehow you figured out it wasn't in hardcover. Maybe there was another question about is it in hardcover at all, not just on the hardcover yeah, I think fiction I, bestsellers yeah. list. I think I did ask if it was in mm-hmm. hardcover, and you said no. And mm-hmm. so then I asked if it was published in 2021. Like, okay, it's in paperback, but how recent of a paperback? Right. Was I, I, that's where I was trying to get. Yes. And Somewhere in there I started breaking in terms of giving yeah. a little more, a little more, <laughs> I, I, my, my yeses and nos and interstitial commentary <laughs> became pregnant. You took a little mercy on Yes. Me. And did. you said something that like I would be delighted by. The answer. I think I maybe, I don't remember if I had guessed any other titles, but I I eventually asked, is it Taylor Jenkins Reid's debut novel, Daisy Jones and the Six? <laughs> and I laughed and said no. <laughs> you laughed and said no. Right. And there was a little something more there to it. And so I said, oh, is it the one with the seven husbands? That's and right. in fact, it was. In fact, it was. Which... Uh, the number one pick on the Powell's list. And so we, then we started laughing about um, her debut <laughs> her debut novel. Just announced a sequel to Malibu Rising. Did you see that over the weekend? Carrie yes, Soto is I back. did. I saw that. Striking mm-hmm. well, speaking of striking while well, the iron is hot. So we got on a little bit of a conversation about that list, that book, what Powell's wall looks like, um, and then the Publishers Weekly list and then what people are actually buying. And those are three different, three interestingly different things. Right now, the top three at Powell's, uh, again, this was last week, so maybe it's changed. It was the um, <laughs> Taylor Jenkins Reid's debut novel, <laughs> uh, Mexican Gothic by uh, Sylvia Marina Garcia. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, I have yeah. read the book, so I can't remember. Or did I read? Maybe uh, it doesn't matter. And then the third book is A Court of Thorn and Roses, Roses and Thorns mm-hmm. by Sarah J. Moss. Thorns and Roses. Thorns and yeah. Roses, which is the first of this giant series that's become a phenomenon in its own right. Um, probably... Yes. The biggest series that only book nerds know about, or only book readers. I, it hasn't been adapted. I haven't mm-hmm. even heard about Rumblings, weirdly, in this gold rush of adaptation. I'm sure it's been optioned, but um, there's not a trailer or anything else coming. And we're talking about TikTok, right? These are all kind of TikTok mm-hmm. books, I think, except for Mexican Gothic. And we spent a moment saying, I haven't seen that. I'm off TikTok, so I don't know. But those other ones, I'd seen a bunch. And then how on the Publishers Weekly list, they're really only capturing front list, and there's just this one mini box with top 10 overall. And on that, the debut novel of Taylor Jenkins Reid didn't even appear. So there's a distinction between Powell's and that list. And then on Powell's wall, there's no Colleen Hoover books. And Colleen Mm -hmm. Hoover has like three spots because of TikTok. Um, (laughs) 
And we got into a thing about how some of Colleen Hoover's books and some of the e-books and then some of the print books are Amazon joints. Like one of them is Montlake, one's Grand Central, which is a Hachette. So Powell's may not have been covering, a, 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 excuse me, carrying a bunch of these mm -hmm. Colleen Hoover books, but it wasn't on the top 30. So I didn't know what to make of that. So it was a very interesting moment to talk about where we are in book selling, what else we might find interesting, and how there's like sort of pockets developing. And then the ongoing story I do want to, I do want to keep in people's minds. And I want to look at this more is these authors that are getting a huge boost from TikTok, the Madeline Millers, the um, Sarah J. Mosses, the Taylor Jenkins Reads, the Colleen Hoovers, you, you get to see a pattern here and there are white ladies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been looking around for, you know, what are the top 50 authors that we can attribute TikTok success to? Like, what, what do they look like? Because we've talked about how on the bestsellers list, as much as there's more diversity and inclusion of marginalized voices in the publishing industry, and it is true, and there's still a long way to go, but it's different than it was 10 years ago. There's just no way to say it wasn't. When you look at the bestselling books, though, there hasn't been a lot of movement there. Most of the time, we talked about the Publishers Weekly list of the best-selling books of 2021. We look at one, just the algorithm goes crazy, and that's what TikTok is, is just algorithm gone wild, which is, <laughs> show title, um, <laughs> which is basically reinforcing people's pre-existing tastes and biases and opinions and, you know, recency confirmation, all, all, the, all the Bob Thaler, uh, Kahneman, and Tversky stuff is at play <laughs> in the algorithm. And so that's the other side of the coin. I think... TikTok is selling more books and it's selling books of things that maybe weren't going to sell a whole bunch by themselves, but the thing it's not doing, and you wouldn't expect it to, right? You wouldn't expect it to go against the grain of people's pre-existing biases. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, you, you wouldn't. And the base rates really contribute yes. to that. That just such a small percentage of books published in any given year mean and also then a small percentage of the total books available in the world mm -hmm. um, are by or at least in you know western culture are by people of color so the likelihood of any particular book by a person of color getting like plucked out and have a tiktok video made about it that then goes viral and makes a billion other people read it is just a much much lower than the likelihood of that happening to books by white people because of those base rates um, i would love to see it happen and i I'm skeptical that it will for all of those reasons mm. that you were just listing that these algorithms take, you know, they are built off of your biases. They take what you spend the most time looking at. And we're most likely to look at things that are familiar and that we're already interested in. And most of the, the books that make it up to popular familiarity and have big marketing pushes or that you've heard people talk about in mainstream media are still those. All of those places are still dominated by books by white people. Yep. Um, so there's a there's just a lot going against it. But I would love to see some, you know, like if you've got juice on TikTok yeah. and have a little have a little power think about the books that you're featuring and about the potential influence of, of that situation or data points. Maybe Mexican Gothic yeah, has yeah. been going nuts on TikTok, and I'm like, and so there's something else happening. I'd, I'd love to have more data. I frankly love my theory here to be wrong. Frankly, that would be the best. Outcome yes, for that me would be, that would be the best outcome. And I think we did also at some point in this discussion, decide that we were going to read the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And talk I think about you it decided that, that, and I just kind of missed it. <laughs> You know, you, went, I just, you kinda, just went along with I, it. The, the fast, I just strike three. It was a called strike. Uh, looking there, I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Like, to see it. I, I like Taylor. Jenkins. We're both gonna do it. Yeah, yeah, I like her too. She's fun. Um, okay, yeah. I think right in here there'll be some sort of magical editing that I'm going to do, Rebecca. So that's the end of our our re-record. We'll talk to people in like two seconds. 
but then also not until next week. <laughs> okay, that's curveball one. You ready for curveball two? It's not really, this isn't, this yeah. is not again, I can't think of a way. I've been trying this whole, while I was quizzing you about the other stuff, I was trying to think of, an, of another way to do it. I, I can't really think of it in a way that's fun. It would just be a number. But okay. Bookshop's second anniversary was, let's see, a couple weeks ago. And mm-hmm. they decided, they took out a giant cover ad on, for those of you who don't know, Publishers Weekly basically skins the whole mag in a front and back cover with inside and outside covers ad for whoever wants to buy it. I don't, I want to know how much it is. I've never gotten up the temerity to ask, but usually I'm not super interested, but Bookshop really wants to make it clear how well things are going. And I thought, mm-hmm. we haven't talked about Bookshop in a while. We haven't. Um, no, it's been a and while. And I thought it was interesting to see what their numbers are. So okay. I'm just going to give them to you and maybe we can Great. figure out what is interesting here. So um, I'm going to just, here's their buy the numbers box. Bookstores mm-hmm. worldwide colon, over $21 million earned. Okay. U.S. bookstores colon, $18.7 million earned. Okay. Thirteen hundred and twenty-three. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Is this in sales or profit? Uh, distributed to. So I'm oh, guessing. So I, I don't because because okay. that's bookshop. So this is like the revenue the share. Yeah. Yes, this, this is, is the, like the revenue share that the bookstores yeah, get. Right. Okay. Yes. That's my understanding. Good question. Okay. Um, one thousand three hundred twenty-three bookstores have earned. $12.7 million in bookshop.org direct commissions. Mm-hmm. 1,391 bookstores split $6 million from our profit sharing pool. Okay. 51,023 affiliates link to bookshop.org. 78% of bookshop.org customers use to buy their books from Amazon. Okay. Um, there's just a big pie graph with no units. I'm not going to do that. Um, I think those are all the salient numbers. Anything from that strike you? Yeah, the million, the 12, it's $12.7 million went to like 1,300, 1300-ish bookstores in, in direct okay. commissions. So... That's like an average of a hundred grand per bookstore. Is that right? Which I, I did the math differently because just... I didn't get that number. Twelve point seven okay. million divided by one three two three equals. I got ten thousand dollars. Oh yes, yep, that would be right. Ninety six hundred. Ninety six hundred total. How things are going today is that yeah. I can't make the calculator work right. So that then, like if we divide that by two. We right. divide that by two, so their annual annually the average bookstore uh-huh. got forty eight hundred dollars yeah. less than from five. bookshop. I'm not sure how to feel about that number. Is that good? Is that bad? Is it meaningful? Is it I, what what is what do we make of that? I don't that think that 12, number $400 a month that, the average participating yeah. bookstore has gotten from bookshop.org. I don't think that number means anything by itself, but I understand why they would present it because 12.7 million is a lot of dollars. And probably most people aren't doing the math we're doing of like 10 grand per bookstore over two Mm -hmm. years divided by 12 months. Like it's only meaningful 
really if it's additive business at all to the bookstores. Right. So like, are these customers that they weren't getting otherwise because they didn't have some sort of, you know, online retail and then, and so they used bookshop. Mm. The stores, my understanding is that indie stores that had really robust online retail are not using bookshop links because they already had robust online retail and the ones that work with the ABA have like a, a full setup from that back end. So yeah. then you, then like, it's not, we can't separate the fact that COVID has happened during basically like the entire mm -hmm. existence of bookshop. And some of those stores did not have online retail and probably the books, the bookshop numbers bolstered them when they had to close in early COVID, if, especially if they didn't have mm -hmm. online sales. So it was like, if you were going to make $0 or you were going to make $500 because you could sell things through bookshop, that's better than nothing. So that might've been a bolstering effect, but I'm skeptical that it was additive for many bookstores and for the ones it was additive for, I guess, skeptical that it was additive enough to like to matter in any ongoing health of the business way yeah it's it's hard to say because two caveats so what i just did is a straight line average right so the number of bookstores mm -hmm. they said they sold right as a function or the number of dollars and then the number of bookstores over time you know the first six months of bookshop it was probably very small so what is the rolling 12 month average right now what's going on with that number mm -hmm. i could believe it's a lot higher Sure. And then what is the standard deviation? Because I just did average and right. of late I've been interested in right. medians. Like, so I don't know how to make sense of that number with some sense of distribution. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and if that average is pulled up by a couple stores that did like gangbusters with bookshop, then it's like good for those couple stores that did tons and tons of revenue. And then we would assume that a lot of stores did a lot less than the 10,000 mm. over 10 years if, if things were pulled up by those outliers. So actually, I think that's where I would land. I would guess that a couple stores really benefited yeah. from having Bookshop and that the rest of the stores who have it, it's better than losing a sale um, mm. because you're not because your store is not open or because you didn't have online retail and a customer didn't want to come to the store. But I remain, I think, skeptical that it, let me rephrase it this way. I don't think Bookshop is saving any independent bookstores in the long term, mm. like, or keeping them open when otherwise they would be closing. Um, not that that's the only function of Bookshop, right. but like an ongoing contribution that just sort of bolsters independent bookstores is great. That's fine. It's nice. You know, five grand a year is not nothing when you're running a business that has like a 2% profit margin. Can, so. can Yeah, I think if I summarize what you're just saying a little bit, I'm going to submit a ticket to the Court of Truth real quick. And the Court okay. of Truth mm -hmm. stat is how many bookstores are open today that wouldn't be open without bookshop? Right. Yeah. That, that would be the number I like to hear. They picked a testimonial. Would you like to hear this testimonial? Because it's both I'm not sure and I misleading. Want to. At this. No, no, here we go. This is from <laughs> Daniel Mullen. This is a big ad for, this is non-sponcon, bookshop.org. It hasn't paid for this spot. Uh, Bookseller okay. spotlight on the back. This is who they chose to, to, to put on here, right? This is, so take that mm -hmm. for what it's will. Daniel Mullen of Semicolon Bookstore and Gallery in Chicago, Illinois. Black woman-owned business merging a love for mm -hmm. art and literature in a unique gallery space. Here's her quote. We're booksellers. What we want to do is talk to people in our store and sell and talk about books. We can't talk to you if we're packing up a thousand boxes. 
Okay, then here's their blurb in prose. Semicolon Bookstore and Gallery has earned over 1.5 million in revenue from sales on bookshop.org, all without packing a single order. Mm. 1.5 million? So that shop alone has gotten 10%. Like, yes, right. So is that, does that make us feel, what do you do with that? <laughs> I mean, great for Danielle. Shouts to semicolon bookstore and gallery in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, that good job great. to them. Whatever they did to advertise their bookshop stuff, A+. Plus. And I guess like for our listeners who don't know, the, the way that this works is if you order a book right. through bookshop that is connected to a particular independent bookstore, the store gets a kickback of revenue share, but the book is fulfilled, I believe, by Ingram. So the yeah, so the booksellers, the booksellers don't have to spend their time processing that order, which is one of the other appealing things, as that bookseller is saying about using Bookshop rather than having your own online ordering system. Because as we also saw in early COVID, a lot of independent bookstores just became online fulfillment yes. centers. Like yes. that was a good situation. It was a good problem for them to have that their communities were showing up and buying books at such a volume that they were, you know, just spending eight hours a day packing things up and shipping them out. Right. But that's not what you get into the book business to do. No. Uh, I think if you have to break down the overall um, bookshop numbers and decrease that 1.5 million, take take away the 1.5 million from the 12.7. So it's what, 11.2 million across 1,200 and whatever, like. Well, I'm guessing they picked the outlier, right? They picked what's the best one to pick. Right, what's the best story, right? I mean, this is what you do when you're touting. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. And we we put that into the pot of evaluation Um, to figure it out. I guess another question we want is, is this a bell curve distribution, right? Like, how is this distributed? Because I'm guessing Daniel Mullen is an outlier on the right-hand side of a bell curve distribution. One would assume. But how much of an outlier, right? What's the... What's the what actually median is the 25 to 75th um, deciles uh, mm-hmm. or percentiles of people getting? Because the other quote on the front is from uh, Noel Santos, who we know a little bit and liked mm-hmm. and followed over the yeah, years. Because the of bookshop.org, I'm not concerned mm-hmm. about our viability. I can thrive rather than just survive. So my working hypothesis right now, Rebecca, is that there is a meaningful number of bookstores at that right end of the distribution curve that are getting meaningful, substantial, business-altering business from bookshop.org. How many? What is your meaningful number of bookstores? <sighs> More than three. More than three is meaningful. Okay. Out of 1,270 or... that got revenue from bookshop? <laughs> or there are, well, let me, may, I don't know about meaningful. Let me take that um, modifier off the board. There are bookstores for whom bookshop.org has made a meaningful impact either staying yes. in business or really doing awesome doing because this is do 1.5 mm-hmm. million from this is a do that's doing awesome for, for an yeah and i guess the thing gallery. we can't know about this is for semicolon in chicago and yes. for noel store in the bronx if they had tossed up i don't know when their bookshop stuff launched but a if they had tossed up or their own a website go, or 
or their own like really yeah. robust online retail, which I have, I'm not Googling while we're talking on the show. So I don't know if they, if you can just order directly mm-hmm. from them, but if they're following that typical model in indie bookstores where you're either using bookshop or you have your own ordering system, I'm going to assume for the purposes of this conversation, knowing that I might be wrong, yeah. that they're just using bookshop. We can't know how much higher this no. is because of it or lower. Nope. Um, like there might have been people who uh, there's just a, a, t- a bunch of unknowns. People might have bounced out because they didn't recognize what bookshop was or mm-hmm. they might have bounced out if they had to create an account at an independent bookstore's website um, or nothing. There might be no difference, but we can't know those things. So I, th- I feel like it has an asterisk next to it. Like yeah. these stores have really benefited from the existence of bookshop. Yes. If you made one point five million dollars in revenue from it. Undeniably, Undeniably, you benefited. Yeah. Would could you have made that in some other way if Bookshop didn't exist? Is the big open question that brings my asterisk. Yeah, and then I how? Think. Like, how are all these? How are you like getting all of these sales through Bookshop? Like, what? I don't understand. My guess is some sort of online campaign. That's the only thing I can figure out. Like, are is it? Why is why is or, this the outlier? I, I guess mm-hmm. what happened to know, make people, this an outlier. Yeah, I would guess it was some support independent bookstores, save our neighborhood bookstore, here's where you can buy books. Yeah. Yada, yada. Because just, I mean, the average revenue at like a mid-size, like not not Powell's, not the Mm -hmm. Strand. 1.5 1.5 million is on the very high end. Very high side. <laughs> Shop around a corner did a quarter million dollars of business, according to You've Got Mail in 1998. So just, you know, I'm kidding. That's not anything. But, uh, yeah, and they so, were paying Manhattan rent. That's, that's, it, was, it was different. It was the 90s, Rebecca. Um, it was different that's back true. then. Yeah, I, I guess I find myself with more questions than answers. Um, yeah. I, later, in, in, as far the deeper we go into the bookshop. I mean, they're around. People mm-hmm. like them. Um we every now and again see a bookshop.org is not as great for us as people think, but I think in any group where you have 1,300 participants, there's going to be a few percentage of people that don't have a great experience. I think that's acceptable and, and nothing to mm-hmm. be concerned about. I'm just having a hard time wrapping my mind around how to think about $12 million-ish. Well, and then there's this profit-sharing pool. If we really look at that, that one is... You're just on the store, but it's not directly through your store. That's another $6 million. So $18.7 million earned over two years um, during a pandemic when bookstores were closed and looking for a lifeline. Is that great performance? And I I guess I still don't know. And how it affects the larger firmament? Does it buttress independent bookstores from Amazon? Which is the thing. They said, they said, we don't, that's not what we're trying to do is convert people to Amazon, but then that's all they talk about. So I don't know how to do that either. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, I find it super fascinating. So that's it. That's I think it's really 18 minutes of talking with no resolution. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Riot podcast. I think it's really interesting. I think where I'm landing on Bookshop is they're around. Like mm-hmm. I, and I think that's good and fine. We like diversity of options in the marketplace. Whether it ultimately contributes to propping up independent bookstores or extending the lifeline of them against Amazon Mm. or consolidation from publishers or anything is a different question, but I don't think that bookshop is a failure. No, no. If it doesn't do that, I don't think you're saying that either. Um, But we might, we slash people who were super 
excited about the launch of Bookshop might have been like asking too much of it from the jump. And I think Bookshop contributes to this narrative Mm -hmm. that like we are going to save independent bookstores. That's a really high ask. I would be surprised if many of the independent bookstores participating think that it's likely or think that that's the reason that they're participating with Bookshop. But they're around. It's a resource. Making an extra on average five grand a year is better than not making it if it is, in fact, extra that you wouldn't have gotten before. It's an, it's good for consumers to have options. And it, it does further some kind of conversation about why would you leave Amazon and what are the options? It's nice mm-hmm. to have multiple answers to the where can I buy my books that's not Amazon question for people. Um, and I think interesting to see someone try this model and try to find a way to do business support a bunch of independent bookstores which all run their businesses very differently yeah and and do their own pr for like why it's good to be around um but i i guess i kind of i'm talking myself into like i kind of don't care if we never get bookshop numbers again i think that's where i'm at like unless someone from bookshop is going to roll out and be like here is what all of this actually means and here's right. how we take it. And then somebody from the ABA is going to talk about the actual impact on most stores of it. Like, okay, you're here. Like, you're just here mm-hmm. and that's fine. And I think it's good for the market that there are options. I'm over the PR press for Yeah, it, I, think I think that's a really interesting thing to say is like, if you're just going to trot these numbers out every year, I don't know what kind of context it, to put that in. You know what I think like bookshop.org is really good for? Is bookshop.org. Scribd. Yeah. Because if you think about, I'm not sure, that, I'm not going to do the live on air breaking down their profit and revenue sharing, but let's say that they're paying <laughs> out 10% of, of sales and commissions. It's probably something mm-hmm. like that, right? So that means the $21 million distributed to all bookstores internationally means that bookshop itself has taken in $210 million in gross sales over two years. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of books. Yeah, that is to a move lot of through. books. Um, now, is it, does it offer a service that if there was a, a good sort of bog standard white labelable front end that the ABA had? Um, we used to call this indie bound. Wasn't that what it was? What mm-hmm. was that thing called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was does Bookshop bound. actually add exists. anything other than a being a feature that bookstores can use does it move the needle i don't know what to do with the 78 percent of people used to buy their books on amazon do i believe that I, 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 i'm not sure what else to do and like they don't buy them anywhere else anymore like that's yeah yeah so it, I, it's hard it's hard to know i think the the thing i will say is that bookshop.org has been good for bookshop.org and there's a there's at least a few <laughs> bookstores i'm willing to believe that have benefited from it greatly has yes. it been sort of egalitarianly across the board a win for everyone participating? I don't, I don't think that's probably that's probably yeah, um, all I'd, that interesting. I'd be interested in hearing more about the affiliate structure, like 51,000 yeah. and change affiliates is interesting. Who are the biggest ones? How many right. books do they sell from the most? Like that, I think, has more potential to change the landscape of books and reading is people deciding to link their their book links to something other than Amazon. And 51,000 affiliates is a small drop in the bucket in the pool of everyone on the internet who links to books (laughs) to sell them. Um, But it's not nothing. And if some of those sources are 
big. Mm. It, maybe it, maybe it's a Substack with a million subscribers, and mm-hmm. some of those people are buying their books through the bookshop links instead of Amazon, which is a thing that I've seen. I'd be really interested in that. Like that's a bigger shift for the whole marketplace if you can if you can shift people's online shopping habits in general rather than focusing on shifting purchasing into independent bookstores. The number we don't get. So there's 51,000 affiliates. How much money's been paid out to them? I don't think I have that number. Mm. Yeah, I don't see it. Uh, sometimes okay. what they don't put in these puff pieces is interesting. Uh, that's one that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, let's do another sponsor break and take a quick tour of Bandland and try not to visit very long. We're not gonna we're not gonna stay overnight, mm-hmm. but we're gonna drive through real quick. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. All right, Rebecca, you're in charge of this um, quick road trip tour of like the um, volcanic uh, caldera, uh, to use Yellowstone terminology, of the this week in book banning. Where do you want? What, where does your interest this uh, fall? Yeah, you know, this week's highlights that I have decided to talk about are not as bad as some of the things mm. we've seen. And the first one is a case where I think it's the first case that I've seen where the students sued the school district. Um, honestly, we talk about so many of these that that 
might not be the first one. It's the first one that I remember. Um, but in the in Wentzville, which is outside St. Louis, um, the school board voted earlier this week, seven to zero, to keep challenged books in the school libraries. This was just hours after students filed a lawsuit against the district for removing other books. Um, two students sued the school district for violating their civil rights by banning books, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Uh, lawyers for the ACLU of Missouri were representing the two students who were identified only by their initials. And they were discussing that removing the books threatens the students' abilities to learn and engage with a diversity of ideas and information, including seeing their own experiences reflected in the books and developing greater understanding of the experiences of others. Um, On that same Tuesday, the board unanimously approved the recommendation Um, of the district's book challenge committee to keep Gabby, a girl in pieces by Isabel Quintero. Um, It's a coming of age story about a Mexican American teenager. It had been challenged by one parent for foul language and a depiction of rape. So Mm. that's the information that we have about this. Um, We're seeing these kinds of things all over the place, like really, really all over the place. And if you're following book banning news, um, Kelly Jensen at book riot is covering a lot of censorship stuff on our site and um, so you can keep track of the news mm. tab uh, over there if this is something that you really want to keep an eye on but i thought this was notable in that you know there had been the challenge against gabby a girl in pieces um these students filed uh, suit over the ban that included or the challenge that included the bluest eye and some others and then the school board decided to keep them on. We don't have a lot of like record of that conversation in the school board meeting. Um, the the reasoning for it, it sounds like the complaint for the first title at least was just presented by one parent. But I was heartened to see students leading this charge. That feels to me a little bit like the kids are going to be all right. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting approach for the ACLU to tackle yeah. this as a violation of students' civil liberties. Um, if something, if a case like this makes its way um, to court because a school board doesn't do what the Wentzville school board has done here and just keep books on the shelves, I'll be really interested to see that. Very I think it's the first see. time that I've seen that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love to, if there are you know some legal beagles among our listeners, uh, I'd love to hear any insights about this or precedent for it, um, why it might be more successful than other approaches that folks have taken to responding to attempts to challenge and ban books. But I was really heartened by that. And if you want to be a little birdie, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. That's a great point, Rebecca. I hadn't thought about the... Um supra ramifications of legal challenges on behalf of the students. I really like the idea. I wish they didn't have to do it. I should say students having to stick up for, for these books and the stories that speak to them or the stories they want to hear or just their, their um, ability to access these stories. I think it does change the equation for people trying to ban stuff or get taken off a list or whatever else it might be. Because to this point, it's largely these books are these sort of um, non-human just object things and the authors behind them usually don't live around there. They're kind of absent people. And so book banning on in one sense can seem like a victimless crime because it feels like you're doing disservice to these books or authors that have books everywhere and they don't live in the locality. And this really suggests and puts, you know, physical manifestation to know the people that are the victims here or the anti-beneficiaries to use a, a, a more neutral or maybe spin term are the students in there. Right. Because if books matter, 
then having or not having access to those books matters to the people accessing them. In this case, these are students, right? These are the people that are having their experience formed, curtailed outside of the pall of what they might want or what their teachers who are directly responsible for their curriculum or libraries responsible for con um, development collection, and everything else want. This is the student saying, you know, wait a minute. We have a voice mm -hmm. in this. We are the ones that are the consumers of these services, these, these goods and services, these books and teaching and librarian and access. No one's really thinking about us from what we might actually want out of, oh, no, they might read something that mm -hmm. turns them gay, I guess, or something right. like, yeah, like that. That's what the thing that's yeah, not said know, in a lot of these situations. Yeah. One of the things that Kelly has been hammering home in her coverage of censorship for Book Riot is that it's not actually about the books. It's about yes. attempts to gain power and control over the education system and to like pull power out of the system and give it back or put it into, not even give it back, put it into the hands mm -hmm. of individual parents who represent typically a pretty far right, pretty conservative approach to things. This is not actually about a particular title or about let's protect the children, but seeing the children speak back to mm -hmm. that argument is really powerful. And I think, at least shines a light onto the rupture in that argument that these far right folks tend to make of like, think of the children, protect the children. And when the kids are saying, no, we want mm -hmm. access to these books, like you're going to have to fight that battle of gaining control in the school system some other way, because we're going to stand here and tell you that this is not about protecting us. You're harming us. Yeah. I think that's really powerful and I'd love to see it gain some steam. Yeah, me too. Good job. Heroes of the week. The students, um, getting getting their hands dirty um there let's end with a little frontless corner where we're gonna have one title this week um i've got a, we can do more as we're figuring out the ways to do this we're gonna do i we need an entry for this so we've talked i've used the the um the phrase before for me that there's books are either special books or they aren't there can be great books books that i really like that a are, are not special books and this is a very idiosyncratic way of thinking about it i need a new term here because if mm. I'd done this in print, I'm not sure I would call this a special book, but I did not. I did it in audio, which I think makes it rise to be a special audio book. It's Heartbreak by Florence Williams. Um, mm -hmm. And it's special because we haven't heard that many of these where it's a audio book that's produced kind of like a long form NPR kind of podcast where you've got audio throughout You've got original audio from participants in striking ways here we can talk about in a minute. But I'm putting a, this is a special book, double hash mark asterisk <laughs> next to Florence Williams's Heartbreak um, for the experience alone. But it goes with the content as well. Rebecca, do you want to take a moment to yeah. tell the people what the content here is? Yes. I just want to first second that emotion. I've read Florence Williams' other books. Um, she had a great book about breasts that was called Breasts several years ago, and The Nature Fix, which is about the science of why going outside is good for us, which I obviously loved. So I was going to read Heartbreak anyway. I think I would have enjoyed it. Um, but you're right that the audio is a really, really special experience. And I would love to talk to her about it because I wonder if this started as an audio project and somehow yes. got morphed into an audio project that they could make a print version of. It kind of feels like it well, had tell to them why. I mean, that There's way. a reason why it feels like <clears throat> So 
the setup is that um, she was going through a, a divorce, the end of a 30 year marriage and wanted to study, wanted to learn like basically how to cope with it. But mm. through the scientific lens of what happens in our bodies, what's happening in our brains and our nervous systems when we go through heartbreak. Um, and there's not a, to- a whole lot of research yeah. about that, but she finds people whose work is adjacent to it and people who talk about trauma and people who studied love, but who now study the end of relationships and all kinds of things. And so the content is really interesting. But what makes this so special is that, like you get audio recordings that she made on her phone from like sitting on the bank of a river that she was kayaking by herself as one of the ways that she was trying to yeah. move through the pain of this heartbreak. So like live in the moment stuff. There's uh, lunches that she had with her girlfriends where she puts her recorder on the table and you just hear them real talk her about like why she let this guy that she was dating treat her in a particular way and probably the thing that put us most over the edge was the first man that she has a romantic relationship with after the divorce agrees to be in the book like his voice they have conversations on the audiobook and like what happens on those dates is not particularly flattering for him and we had a whole like we had a whole text exchange about how we couldn't have a text exchange talking about that whole segment because what we talk about when we talk about her relationship with ennis is kind of the the meta meta discourse it was like just that little see no that little see no evil emoji the monkey with its hands over its eyes like i know that you know that i know what (laughs) we're talking about but we're not and oh my gosh can you believe that she was like bold enough to put it in there and that that guy signed a release to have his voice in there and you know also inner live interviews with the researchers that she goes and Mm -hmm. speaks to so it's not just like pull quotes in a book but real conversations in real time that she was having and I mean, it feels like each chapter is a podcast episode. Yes. And I would listen to one of these a couple times a week for the rest of my life. Listen, we've done a lot of Pushkin talk recently. This I don't know if we said this. Or this is a Pushkin audiobook production. Oh, right, right. I think the print book is distributed by Norton. I don't know what the chicken and the egg situation here is. But I think I said to you that I now will give right of my... I'll give Pushkin the benefit of the doubt if they have an audiobook coming out because yes. it's just a uh-huh. different kind of experience. Their taste is really good, but the production quality is fascinating. And there's just something different about having the actual tape. Yeah, that's how I'm dating myself. The actual recording mm-hmm. of these things. Now, Florence, she doesn't she doesn't start recording from like the big bang of the divorce. I think the first recording is six months later, which I mm-hmm. think is humane for her and for us and maybe didn't have the ideal till later. Um, I think it's very delicate about her family, especially, and her mm-hmm. husband. And it's really about her and her dealing with it and all the things that's been out about it. But in terms of an audio production, this is like the X-Men. This is homo superior of audio production it's, here. This is the next like... thing to go. And it's very expensive to do. It's much more time consuming. But I now find myself in listening to nonfiction. I have to tell you, I'm listening to something I I, I like a lot more or I like very well that I find myself saying, boy, I wish that section that was could have been interview tape actually in the Mm -hmm. thing. I wish this thing that they're describing, you could have had a sound cue for it. And again, not everyone's going to do it because audiobooks are, you know, you have to put it into the PL of making the the audiobook for sure. But if you can't, this is a situation, I was thinking about this too. This is a space where most people don't care about imprints. This is one, if they did this well consistently, they did four titles a year only that were this high quality, I would say, What's the new Pushkin book? And people will know what I'm talking about. Like, there's an opportunity mm, here to absolutely. really own this space. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's so, right. Anyway, yeah. there we uh, go. It's it has bled into my listening of other things as well. Or I'm I'm reading um, in nonfiction. I'm not done with it yet, so I won't fully talk mm-hmm. about it. In the Shadow of the Mountains by Sylvia Vasquez yes, Lovato. Great example. Yeah, which is it's wonderful, and she's hiking. The, in the Himalayas, she's trying to hike Everest with a group of women who are victims of sex trafficking. Yes. And she's leading them. She was the victim of childhood sexual abuse. And they have these, she describes these big conversations about their experience, about what's happening to them while they're out in nature, having this experience with their bodies and how it's healing and challenging. And, you know, for obvious reasons, she might not have wanted to plop a tape recorder on the mm-hmm. table in those moments, but it would be powerful to hear them on audio and I think like now that I know this can be done because I've heard Florence Williams do it I can't unknow that and it's going to make me want it from a whole bunch of other things and frankly it helps me with a price premium for an audiobook right because I know that that takes more like it's not just and I was just doing Power of Regret by Daniel Fink I'm not sure if I talked about last week or not but I did that that's Daniel Pink reading the text that shows up the same why am I paying $19 for that exactly Mm -hmm. you know uh, as opposed to the, the, the audio, the ebook or something else. It's funny you would mention that, that se- sequence because in Heartbreak, there is a scene where Florence Williams goes on a hiking trip with people who are recovering from sex trafficking. <laughs> well, it goes both ways because in, in The Shadow of the Mountains, there's a moment where she quotes Florence Williams' The Nature Fix. That's unbelievable. So I just need stuff. to figure out if they, yeah, I'm having like a weird reading synchronicity yeah. moment. Um, they, they probably know of each other. No, but I'm just um, saying, like, you hear what yeah. the version would be like because it's in yeah, Heartbreak yeah. of yes, her recording right. and she gets permission and everything else. So yeah. I, it, it was one of those, um, I haven't had an experience like this before. And I know Gladwell's Talking to Strangers and Bomber Mafia were similar to this. I did not do them that way. I read Bomber Mafia in ebook, and then I didn't get to Talking to Strangers because I didn't want to do it. But it's a good enough experience now that I'm like, hmm, that's, yeah. that's a differentiation that if they could make it clear... If they could be the Pixar of audiobooks like this, where it's just qualitatively better, that is super interesting to see. It and does. I don't know if they, again, the problem you have, as you said, is you have to record in the moments and you may mm-hmm. not know you have a book deal till later. Like you may right. not know, like uh, there's going to have to be a little hand in glovedness going on with it, but such as, such as life, but uh, I'm going to be looking out and it's good. It's the burden really of remarkable. proof is going to be on me not to listen to future Pushkin yes. joints. It is. Yeah. Okay. That's got to be our show for today. Podcast um, at bookriot.com. If you have Patreon subscription ideas, they're going to be linked in the show notes that we said to a survey. Also at bookriot.com slash listen. Um, the last for now adaptation nation is available. Sharif and I did a episode on the color purple on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the color purple. Um, let me just say, what a wild time the early 80s were for this kind of product to be made. I told Rebecca this. I don't think it made it into the show, so it's a little bonus here, that my favorite factoid that came out of mine and Sharifa research was that Whoopi Goldberg, who got the part of Seeley, um, got turned, Spielberg, who directed the movie, got turned around on her, seeing her perform a imitation of E.T., but E.T. high, while getting pulled over for a drug bust uh, in <laughs> Oakland. That's how she got the job. I'll leave you with that, Rebecca. I left you with that the other day. I will leave with you again now. Thank you all so much for listening. Okay, y'all have a good one. All right.